Welcome to Objection to the Forum. This is Justin Humphreys. This week, I've got Emily Jones with me. Uh, thank you for coming on, Emily. Yeah, thank you, Justin. I appreciate it. Well, we've got kind of a, a, a fun and interesting topic this week. I guess it's not fun if you're involved, but it's juvenile law. And it, it's something that I think it's – I'm glad, Emily, that you're able to join us because it's, it's an area that not a lot of attorneys do, and you know, especially ones like me. I don't really know anything about it, so I'm going to kind of sit back today and learn a lot, and I uh, appreciate you being here. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. You know, it's kind of – thinking about the what really is juvenile law and, and what uh, what makes it up and I think one of the first things that I hear about a lot and especially in the Wilmington area is you hear about uh, underage drinking and uh, and how that how the courts treat that issue okay yeah um, so to clarify at first for underage drinking they're not juveniles so those would actually be adults um, so well most times you can't have juveniles that do drink underage but usually in our um, court system we have a lot of people that are over the age of 18 that are getting charged, like your college kids. So a lot of kids here from UCW, Cape Fear, um, getting drinking tickets. Um, I don't see that as commonly with our juveniles, which are under 18 years old. Um, but we're talking about the drinking ticket type stuff. Um, we've got a couple different varieties for that. Uh, we definitely have a lot of kids that are, you know, out around town um, with drinks actually in their hands. And then we also have the kind of drunk and disorderly type yep. version. I went to college at the, at the University of South Carolina, and when I was when I was there, uh, we were in fear of SLED, is what they called us, the um, like South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, and they were the ones that they're kind of comparable to ALE here, mm -hmm. and and back then what would happen is you'd see they'd run all, like almost stings at college parties and or, or college bars and things like that. Is does ALE or, or does the is there any sort of uh, law enforcement wing in this area that, that does those sort of activities? So I know that there are a lot of tickets that come out of college parties um, and also a lot of house parties, especially now with COVID. My understanding from a lot of my clients is that's kind of what is the norm now. Um, and especially here in Wilmington, there are other options where in other cities like Raleigh or even where you're talking about, you have other big areas where they might have college parties, but especially the house parties now. Um, and so I do know they have law enforcement and I've heard from clients and other people. I don't know if it's Actually, true or not, just rumors that because of COVID, when UNCW students were coming back in, they were actually um, trying to circulate finding different areas where kids would commonly have house parties and kind of go in. But I know ALE definitely tries to do what they can to enforce um, different areas for not selling to underage individuals. So are they, are they, is ALE, I guess, in this area more focused on the providers such as, you know, your, your bars and restaurants and and things like that rather than focusing on your your common house party that's what i've seen more of from the clients that i have and the tickets they receive and where they receive them that seems to be now in the covid point. era is it kind of is there any authority of police to to go to if it appears that there's a party and you, you see a bunch of people gathering you say well there's no way there's there's less than 10 people in there is that is that grounds to really go in and investigate or do you have to have a noise complaint or how I guess the kind of point of the question I'm asking is what can can you do to kind of avoid the scrutiny of, of law enforcement when you're having a party or having well, guests over? Sure. Well, I think for um, you know any type of situation, you've got to have certain legal standards in order to to approach somebody. Um, you've got to have certain legal standards to arrest somebody. So I think that if you're talking like kind of a, a house party context, if law enforcement comes upon this house, if it seems unruly. Um, they can, you know, potentially come and investigate, but you're usually looking at noise ordinances. Um, so that's when, when I have people come in, somebody has called law enforcement because um, there are kids being rowdy, kids being loud, there's a bunch of cars on the street, they're causing other problems, and that's what brings law enforcement out to check on the situation usually. So if you're, if, if you're an underage person, may or may not have been drinking, and you're at a party and now there's been a noise complaint, what would your advice be if you could kind of talk simultaneously to the person that's been at the house and the police have arrived and, and now they're walking around asking questions and seeing what's going on? Well, the first thing is if they, everybody's inside, that's one thing. Because if law enforcement comes to the door, if you let them in, they can come in. Um, but otherwise, they would have to have a reason to come in. Um, and usually they have to have a search warrant to be able to come inside the home. So um, that's advice that I wish that I had received before um, I actually became an attorney when I was actually in college because um, I had a lot of friends that got busted because they cops would show up for some reason and there would be a bunch of people inside drinking underage. 
and somebody would let them in. Um, and somebody would give them consent to come into the home, and then everybody else is subjected at that point to being questioned. Because, yeah, the, and kind of going a little bit off topic, but I guess you don't really have a expectation of privacy when you're at somebody else's house. So if, if right. you just happen to be there and they let them in, then it's it's kind of free, free reign from that point. And I think that's something interesting as far as a lot of times you talk with law enforcement and you just assume – they know what they're doing. They've been doing this. If they say they need to come in, then I guess I better let them because I don't, you know, who am I to tell law enforcement what they can and can't do? Sure. And I feel like most people are like that. You know, most law-abiding citizens, if you have a law enforcement officer at your door, you're going to, most of them are going to respect that authority and they're not going to know otherwise what they can and can't do. But also in the context of like an 18-year-old or, you know, 18, 22, somebody in college, if the law enforcement officers come in the door, especially if they've been drinking, they're not going to know what to do. Um, and so a lot of times the kids will just open the doors and then leave to go. Yeah. And most people think in that moment they're kind of fight or flight responses. Right. I'm going to I'm going to outwit the officer. He'll, he'll I, I'm not that drunk or I'm right. not whatever. I'll, I'll just be able to smooth this thing over and get him to get out of here. Yeah. But yeah, not not a good idea. So I think that's that's really great advice. Um, you know, just in general, because, you know, and I know everybody listening, most people, you know, they're everybody's law abiding and they're not breaking any laws. But especially in a social setting, you don't know what's going on in your house. And if unless there's really no reason to let officers in, especially if it's a noise issue, you can handle that by, you know, I'm sorry, we'll, we'll make sure to turn the music down and won't let it happen again. It's not the stereo's loud. You need to come look at it or people are yelling, you know, like, I'll, I'll deal with my house. I'll, I'll deal with getting everybody to be quiet. Right. And again, just, you know, open the door, step outside, close the door behind you type of scenario. Um, and also, if they're in the home, anything that's in plain sight is in fair game as well. So if there's, you know, drugs on the table or um, anything else that is otherwise um, illegal, then they can. Now, th that, that brings up kind of an interesting point with, with the drugs and, and plain view. If it's your house, is, is that, do you have any problems if, if other people are doing drugs in your house? So you've got two different types of possession, actual possession and constructive possession. And so what you're referring to right now is more of a constructive possession issue, um, which is, you know, if you're in a roommate situation, even if something is on the kitchen table, everybody that lives there has access to it, everybody that's there has access to it, even if somebody's not actually possessing that item in their hand or in their pocket, their purse. Um, so, yes, you've got issues um, because if you're able to see it, grab it, obtain it, then and control it, then you have constructive possession of it. Gotcha. And so that can be so just even if it's not, I guess, your home, essentially, since it's within your control, that could be that could um, you could end up being charged with it. Yeah. Same for a car. If you're a passenger in a car and there's you know drugs in a car and you don't know they're there, but they're underneath your seat, you can possess those drugs. What kind of punishment is an adult underage drinker looking at for for kind of your, your first offense just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time? Sure. So the um, district attorney here, Ben David, created a program several years ago, um, kind of as a first offender program to assist with the volume of tickets that were coming through the court system and also to assist individuals because, again, most of them are college age, um, making decisions that probably aren't um, the best decision at the time and infecting their their lives moving forward. So what you're really looking at is um, what we call deferred prosecution. Um, which will allow for the individual to be placed on probation, typically unsupervised probation, so no probation officer, but usually for a period of a year. Um, and this program has a whole list of different components, and if the individual complies with those components while on probation, then the charge gets dismissed. Um, and so it's kind of a win-win for everybody because if the individual charge does what they need to do, it gets dismissed. Unfortunately, if they do not do what they need to do, then it is listed um, as a conviction on their record. Is, do the deferred prosecutions typically involve community service? Yes. Um, so the way that they have it structured is you've got the 12 months of unsupervised probation, usually about four hours of community service. If there are multiple charges um, on the same citation, so if it's like an underage drinking and a possession charge or, you know, just multiple charges, then the in excuse me, they might increase the number of community service hours. Um, they also are requiring a drug and alcohol class. Um, so uh, Street Safe used to be one of the, the big providers here locally, and so that was a class that individuals could attend. Um, they also require for individuals to observe our treatment court here, and that meets every other Friday. Um, and it's a good way for them to see other adults in the area that have fallen victim to substance abuse and are trying to recover and kind of seeing what lives 
they lead and what can happen in adult court. Do you get do you go for your your class at kind of the the places that typically provide DWI classes? Um, it's different. So um, what you're talking about is more for like a substance abuse assessment and completing those classes. This is a specific program called Street Safe that will um, gear more towards this age group and give them more um, age specific information about drugs and alcohol. Gotcha. And w- with respect to the community service, do you have to go through the the courts community service program, or are they are they allowing the the, the kind of a letter from a from a nonprofit. Yeah, you get to pick where you um, do your community service, so long as it is a nonprofit organization. Um, and usually, my clients give me a letter on the nonprofit letterhead, and I include that in their packet when I go and get it dismissed for them. So, do you run into many situations where people just don't learn from the first situation, and then they're on ticket number two or three? Absolutely, it's what keeps me in business. Yeah. So, so is that when are you getting the book thrown at you at, uh, at ticket number two, or how how does that work? So it depends on the district attorney, it depends on your client, it depends on the facts and circumstances. There might be a way to still work something out outside of court with the district attorney, um, which would be an informal deferred, which means that we don't have a, a document outlining a contract or agreement between the state and the defendant. Um, but it might just be, hey, I want you to do X number of community service hours for a dismissal. Um, in the event that the district attorney will not agree to something like that, um, then the client has the option to either plead to it um, and so there are some you know sentencing options for that um, or it could be that they go and have a trial but you're usually looking at probation yeah I imagine those trials would be difficult to win is is the nature of it being underage and having alcohol in your system or is it just or is it the within your possession and control kind of like the constructive possession you were talking about or uh, how, how does that work like is it it can be both so they changed the law, I believe, when I was in college, that having alcohol in your system underage was considered possession. Um, so it can be you know, in your system if you're holding a beer um, or potentially constructive possession. Kind of going back to that rights discussion and you know how you, you don't have to let the police in your home if they don't have a warrant, um, what about you know we've got the DWI world where it's implied, complied, implied consent, and if you're on the roads, you're you know you've you've agreed to this the system and that, that you got to blow when you if when you're down at the uh, courthouse, but you know if you're just a, a a guest at a house party, you know and and they say here you said you you hadn't been drinking blowing this do you do you have to do that? So that's kind of a, a tough call because if they present something and ask you to blow into it. Um, most individuals are going to comply with that. Um, and the flip side, if you don't, you don't want to run the risk of a resist ticket. Um, so it's kind of, in my opinion, you've just got to figure out the situation and then we can deal with it more on yeah. the court end. Um, so I, it's just, I don't want to say one way is better than the other, because if you don't do it, then they could potentially go the resisting obstructing delay option. Um, uh, but most times when I'm dealing with these types of tickets, um, you're dealing with kids that had it in their system and they smelled of alcohol. The officers could smell it on their breath. So yeah. the officer's report indicated they were either holding it or they could smell it you know, on their breath, um, things of that nature. They're usually not doing portable breath tests, or at least in the reports I'm getting, it's not included. Um, but a lot of times we don't go the trial route with these. Yeah, because I was just wondering how that would play out because you know, you've got kind of the, the, the officers that are trained to do assessments like alongside the road, and so sometimes – you know, if if a if an officer pulls someone under suspicion of a DWI, they'll call somebody else in. You know, that's that's trained in doing the the field sobriety testing. You know, if it's just kind of a smell and you're at a party with sixty college kids and you know something like that, it, I think it'd be hard to see how it holds up. But it seems like pleading's kind of a better answer for everybody anyway than than getting into that type of situation where you're trying a case when you could just go help the community and um, stay out of trouble and hopefully get it get it dropped later. Yeah, and obviously that's an individual decision for each individual person, but um, most times, I would say nine times out of ten, if not ten times out of ten, the, the cases that I handle for underage drinking, we end up doing the first offender deferred um, because you're not gambling with a conviction. And most of my clients, they are in college or they want to go to college, they want to go to school, they want to move forward with their lives in some capacity, and they don't want a conviction on their record. So most of them are willing to do whatever they can to avoid that conviction. That was the big issue when, when uh, we were all in fear of SLED back in, in the, the days at Columbia, South Carolina, was 
was, you know, everybody's worried about losing their scholarship or something along those lines from these tickets. It wasn't necessarily the the punishment that's going to come from an underage drinking ticket. That was usually nominal, but it right. was, you know, the, the the bigger situation was the financial consequences of of, of the charge. Well, I've, I've, it's an interesting discussion, and, you know, I've, I certainly I think there's some good tips for people and, and uh, good things to share with your children. Uh, we're going to come back in a few minutes and talk a little bit about well, transition from, from drinking to drugs and, and how the, the courts are dealing with those issues. No, I don't, I don't recognize this at all. I love the name of this tune, but I... Emily, can you make anything of this? I think I'm one generation behind you. Perhaps this sounds like a video game almost or something. This is uh, Affirmative Action Nas. Okay, all right. Yeah, you got me. And I, I, all right. We're, we're back with Emily Jones after getting educated about Nas and 90s hip-hop. <laughs> it's uh, the, the, the golden era of, uh, of, of rap music, and, uh, you know, it's, it's a shame that, uh, that it's not here anymore. But, you know, it, 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 it's a good time. The only way to follow up Nas is talk about uh, drug tickets and drug arrests. So... Let's let's jump into drug arrests and first-time drug offenders. Okay. Um, so we just talked about the program that we have a deferred prosecution for underage drinking tickets. Um, for certain drug offenses, we also have a first offenders program. Um, it is called a 9096, but that's the statute number here in North Carolina. Um, so you might hear somebody call it a conditional discharge, 9096. But basically, it's a way for first-time drug offenders to get their case dismissed. Now, it, under 9096, are, are we going to treat crack the same way we're going to treat marijuana? or how? So it's very specific about what can be placed on the 9096. Um, you're looking at a lot of the misdemeanor, simple possession-type charges. You're looking at paraphernalia, and then you're looking at possession of certain charges. Gotcha. So I guess it's, it depends on kind of the, the, the schedules and whatnot of what yes. type. And, and, and obviously the amount, I, I would assume, is a you know, big issue. So, uh, so I guess does that work the same way as the, the deferred prosecutions that you were discussing earlier? Yeah, it's very similar. The underage drinking is a specific program that we have in place. The 9096 is dictated by statute about what can and cannot be included. Um, but then it's left up to the court's discretion for a lot of the terms and conditions for that. What what's kind of what are the range of what you're looking at with a with the 996? If we're talking about um, you know just like less than half an ounce of marijuana or possession of marijuana paraphernalia, then we're we're still in district court, so misdemeanors. Um, and typically for that, we're looking at doing community service and then potentially a drug and alcohol class again for gotcha. that. So, but again, that's usually up to the district attorney. So a lot of times it depends on what the paraphernalia is, what the drug is. Um, you know, if somebody has a criminal history but doesn't have a drug history per se, they might add more community service. So it really is just dependent on a couple different things. Do you find that some of the assistant district attorneys have different attitudes about different types of cases and that, that sometimes it's, uh, you know, you kind of there can be a sense of gamesmanship as far as who you want to propose a, a plea offer to? Yeah, I mean, because they're people, and everybody has their own opinions about different things and how they want to operate. Um I find that in district court, it's pretty consistent. Um, we have two district courtrooms that operate routinely, um, courtroom 200 and 317, and that's where all of our misdemeanors go. Um, we do have a felony district courtroom for some of our felony drug offenses, um, and we've got a, another district attorney there. And I found that they're usually all pretty fair, um, you know, depending on the circumstances. But I found specifically for 9096s or the first-time um, drug offenses that you're going to look – they look about the same. So, again, it does depend on different factors about the individual person, but and, and so consistent. With, with your first-time drug offenses, and I, I guess your, your ultimate end goal on this is to get the, the record expunged. Um, For most is, people, yes. Is, is that available through that statute specifically, or do you have to go through the general expungement scheme? So the – Conditional discharge under 996 will allow for a dismissal after the period of probation, um, and so then it'll be dismissed on that individual's record if they've complied. 
Um, so some people are satisfied completely with just having it listed as dismissed. Other people want it to be expunged. Um, you would have to go through the actual expungement process to have it removed from your record. Um, and the expungement laws just changed um, Monday. And so there are certain um, uh, drug offenses that are not eligible for expungement if they are conviction. However, if they're dismissed, then you can have it removed from your record. And I know it's a, a brand new law, so I don't, I don't want to try to quiz you on the changes and that, and that sort of thing. And I don't know them, so I wouldn't be able to quiz you. Uh, but from a general per perspective, it seems like the trend in expungements is to make them more readily available yes. because of the idea of, you know, l let people move on and, and secure employment and that, that sort of thing. Is that is that consistent with the aims of the new the changes in the new expungement laws? Yes. Yeah, so this is the second time that I can recall since I've started practicing that they have made some major changes to expungement laws. Um, when I first started, you were only allowed one expungement per lifetime. And so that was for a conviction or a dismissal, whatever it was, one per lifetime. Um, they then changed it to allow dismissals, but you couldn't get dismissals expunged if you had a felony conviction on your record. So the new trend for um, expungements will allow any dismissal to come off, regardless of whether or not you're convicted of a felony. Um, and it also allows for periods of time for an individual to stay out of trouble after a misdemeanor conviction or a felony conviction to then have that conviction expunged. So yes, it is becoming more accessible for individuals to have their records expunged. Gotcha. Which is a great thing for employment, for housing, for you know all these different opportunities that people have otherwise been precluded from enjoying because of their criminal history. Yeah, and that makes sense. That's a good objective, and hopefully that trend will continue. Because yeah, I, I, I do know I've I've done that. There was a time when I was doing um, expungements, and I remember being surprised when I first started how you know this was um, you know over ten years ago um, how restrictive they were, and I was kind of thinking, well, a dismissal. Who cares about getting a dismissal? expunge you know essentially i guess you were vindicated so to speak or or at least you can argue hey i mean yeah i was charged but I, but it got dropped but if you're if you were convicted unless you were juvenile you were pretty much uh you're stuck with it yeah and i have a lot of clients where i have that conversation with them about dismissals just like why should i have my dismissals expunged and it's one of those things where if you're an employer and you're running somebody's criminal history and it all this stuff comes up, even though it says dismissed, you know this person's been charged and what they've been charged with. Yeah. Um, and so you're not going to necessarily want to have somebody looking at your dirty laundry, even though you know, it didn't really stick to you. It got dismissed, but you still don't want people to see it. Yeah. Um, so there are some benefits, but a lot of people have that mentality where it's like, hey, it got dismissed. I can explain if I need to. Sure. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. You know, there's and there's the stigma of it, and if you're looking at giving somebody a job as, as you know, especially if they're going to be driving or something like that, and you see right. the, the underage drinking ticket, and you say, oh, well, this this you know, they they may have an issue. Um, you know, going back to that underage drinking uh, discussion we were having earlier, how does how do fake IDs play into that equation? Sure. Um, so we have a, another program for the fake IDs, um, almost identical to the. Um, underage drinking program that I was previously mentioning, the only difference is that with a fake ID, part of the requirement of that program is that you have to surrender your driver's license to the clerk's office for 60 days, and you have to abstain from driving for 60 days. Um, the benefit of that, though, is that if you're convicted of having a fake ID, you'd lose your license for a year. And so it's a way for them to get a slight punishment just for two months as opposed to 12 and also get the dismissal if they comply with the program. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I mean, you can figure something out for two months, but a, a year is a pretty harsh penalty. Right. So kind of breaking down the, I guess, the elements of the, the crime, so to speak, do you have to get called in the act of passing yourself off as, as uh, someone else or, or changing your age? Maybe you're passing yourself off as, as yourself, but you just – increase your age to a to a legal age to, to drink yeah so you've got two different types you've got taking your actual id and modifying it and that's a more serious crime you've also got using somebody else's id as your own and i see that more commonly um i see it a lot in individuals using it at a gas station trying to buy a beer at a grocery store trying to get into a bar um or you know accidentally handing it to the officer when they've been pulled over for a traffic mm. citation so yeah, and, and I guess that and that was kind of the what I would see, you know, or, or what I'm accustomed to seeing is kind of maybe the older person hands off their their old ID to the younger person, or they go get a, a duplicate made, or that that sort of thing. And and I guess it makes sense because it takes kind of a a more sophisticated 
operation to start printing and developing, you know, fraudulent I- right. uh, ID cards. But so I guess is it just is it a is it a crime or is it a, a, a violation of the law to have someone else's identification card um, with you or is it you, you have to actually um, present this to a bartender or a doorman? Sure. Or I mean, I could have your ID in my wallet and it's not going to be a problem. It's when I'm actively trying to use it, saying that I'm you as this person or at this age, um, it's going to be a problem. Gotcha. Yeah, I was thinking, you know, like your example with the traffic tickets. Like, oh, sorry, officer, I just uh, my my friend gave me his ID. You know, what do you say in that in that, in that situation? But um, you know, I could I could see where that you know that could cause some troubles. Well, what about the the stores? So, is it, what responsibilities do do places that that sell alcohol have to try to prevent underage people from from buying? So they all have their licenses. Um, they all have different rules and regulations in place with whatever license they have. Um, but that's where ALE comes in a lot, um, is patrolling and policing these different um, stores. We've got a lot of gas stations um, where, you know, I'll represent the gas station owner, um, and one of their employees has sold to somebody underage, and that's going to be in violation of the permit that they have. And so it doesn't matter how good the fake was or, you know, how close the person's appearance was to I guess the older person that passed them down an ID it's just it's kind of a almost like a strict liability situation that, that would be my guess I mean most of the time when I'm dealing with these cases it is somebody that is you know clearly underage that is not matching their ID whatsoever or the um, attendant might not be paying attention to the birth date and typing it in or you've got ALE coming in um, posing as somebody that's younger to see if they'll sell it to them or watching somebody younger go in. Gotcha. And do they have to, to I guess so it, it, it can be, I guess there's a, you know, there's a multitude of situations where, where that can arise and it's kind of a, almost like a case by case type type scenario. Right. But they definitely have to, to make sure that they have different policies and procedures in place with their staff um, to make sure that they're complying with the laws and regulations and, and complying with their permits. Understood. And so um, when you're saying this program, so I guess you're just, you know, the consequences could be up to a year for, for uh, fake ID tickets? Uh, well, it's a year for a license suspension. Um, but you're if you were convicted of um, using somebody else's ID, then you're looking, if you don't complete the program um, or if you've already done it before and they want you to do another one, you're looking at that being a conviction on your record and most likely some sort of probation. Gotcha. When we come back from the next break, I, I want to get into a discussion about the the juvenile court system and, and kind of how that varies from what we traditionally think of, you know, the, from the experience the adults have and kind of the, the crossover between those two, those, those two divisions of the court. Sounds good. All right, we're back with Emily Jones. We're going to talk a little bit about the juvenile court system and how that differs from the traditional court system um, the jurisdiction, kind of the lines between when can children be uh, tried as an adult, and and so first, the first thing I want to know is just what's the st- your standard juvenile case look like, and and what I mean by that is, um, you know how what are the age ranges of, of a juvenile? Sure. Well, we just recently had raise the age go into play, um, and so now if you're under the age of 18, then you're considered a juvenile. If you're over the age of 18, then you're an adult. Now there are some some little nuances to that, um, but that's just in general. If you're under 18, you're a juvenile. So how is a what what does that mean from the, a standpoint of if I if I'm in juvenile court, how's that going to differ from a from a traditional criminal? So there are a lot of similarities, but there are a lot of differences. For example, in adult court, everything is public record. So anybody can go to the clerk's office, get a copy of any file, talk about anything. They can go into the courtroom. They can watch anything. Juvenile court is closed. Everything in juvenile court is confidential. So when you're a juvenile coming in, the only people that are going to be in the courtroom are involved with your case or are um, officers of the court. So general public is not allowed to come in for juvenile proceedings. Is it the, the same judges and the same people that do the, the district and superior court that are here in these matters? So 
So um, in our district, we have Judge Corpening, who is our chief district court judge, and he handles our juvenile law exclusively and has for the past several years. Um, we do have another judge that might fill in um, if he's in meetings or is out sick or on vacation, but otherwise, Judge Corpening is the primary judge for juvenile court. Is there the felony misdemeanor distinction in juvenile court? And, you know, the, kind of because the, ba- the point of my question is with, with Judge Corpening being a district court judge, if you are a juvenile charged with what would traditionally be considered a felony, um, does that go before him, or is or are there felonies and misdemeanors in the world of juvenile court? So there are felonies and misdemeanors, um, but they're all in district court, um, so I can handle whatever felony I need to um, in front of Judge Corpening. Now, when we get into some of the upper-level felonies and based on the child's age, it might transfer to superior court, and that would be in adult court. I see. So it's it's I guess that's when kind of you were talking about the nuances of yes. of it's the default would be that you're going to be in a juvenile court. But there are certain are they aggravating factors or is it is it relate to the type of crime you've committed? So if the type of felony was an upper level felony. Um, so we're talking about serious, serious offenses and also the age of the individual can control and the transfer. Gotcha. Um, so uh, w- we've got that that juvenile proceedings are closed to the public. And I guess there's not going to be the dispositions and the records aren't public records like it would be with an adult court. Um, are, are the punishments that are rendered the, the same as what you would receive in, a, in an adult court? So we have probation for juveniles um, and have that in adult court as well. So we have court counselors that are the probation officers for juveniles. Um, your periods of probation are typically six months to a year, um, depending on your prior record level, um, and also what you've been charged with. But the the big thing for juvenile court is if you are found responsible. In juvenile court, it's called responsible adult adult court, excuse me, it's called guilty. But if you're found responsible, there are a lot of services that are um, in play for juveniles. So like anger management, any sort of therapy, um, anything that the juvenile might need to potentially better themselves is available for them as part of their probation. You hear juvenile detention uh, discussed. Is that uh, kids jail or, or what, is, what, what exactly does that mean? Yeah, so um, we have juvenile detention. Usually the context um, for that is when an individual is charged. Um, there might be what's called a secure custody order, which allows that individual to stay in custody per a judge's order until such time that the case is handled or until such time that the judge releases that juvenile. Um, And by law, we're required to come back um, with every seven days to have a hearing to determine whether or not that juvenile has to stay in custody. Um, But usually you're looking at by the time they've handled their case, they're usually not being sentenced to stay in detention. Gotcha. And is is, so detention, is that kind of a a county type, sort of like a county jail type thing, or they have state facilities for that? Or like, I guess the point of my question is, like to or how how far are you getting sent away or is this something local? So if you were charged here in New Hanover County, um, they do have a county detention center. It's right in front of the jail in Blue Clay. Um, now there are different facilities. Um, one specifically called YDC, and that is for more serious punishment. And that actually is more. I, I tell clients it's more like a juvenile prison where you are sent off for that. Um, but that is for serious crimes and, and serious punishment levels. But if you're talking about, hey, you get charged in here in New Hanover County, you're going to stay here locally in New Hanover County Detention Center. We've spent a lot of time talking about pleas and kind of different ways you can plea for, you know, be it drinking tickets or first-time drug offenses. Um, I imagine there would be some differences with juveniles pleading because almost like if you're you're not old enough to um, enter into a contract or if you're not old enough for, you know, for certain uh, – limitations the law places um, you don't have the capacity maybe or I, w- I wonder how capacity play interplays with plea agreements because it, it might be you know there might be it seems like there would be some issues with with this this person lacked the the ability to understand what they were doing and enter a plea sure and and usually in those circumstances if I believe that the client does lack capacity to proceed then there are evaluations that can be done the transcript that we have, which is um, a document that the judge would read on the record uh, for a juvenile to enter the plea, has language that's different um, and is um, 
I guess, and written in a way that a juvenile might understand a little bit better. Um, but usually, I'm not dealing with a whole lot of capacity issues. Most of these um, juveniles are able to understand what they've been charged with. They understand the consequences. They can help in a defense, and then they're able to move forward with trial or plea. So it's not a situation where the, the parent or a guardian would, would be the one that would have to, to approve the plea or to, you, you know, kind of like, a you know, for example, me coming from more of the civil end, when there's a, a personal injury claim and a minor is involved, the personal the the minor can't contract with the insurance company to settle its claim, so you have to appoint a guardian, you know, and, and the court has to sign off on the on the settlement. You can't. It, it's not like with an adult where where you just sign the release and get your check. Yeah, in juvenile court, the juvenile is the one that is making these decisions. Um, the parents typically help influence that decision because most of these kids aren't used to making decisions on their own without their parent, um, but 100%, they are the client, they're the ones making the call. Well, we talked about, uh, and I forgot what you called it, but like raise the time, what did you call raise it? Raise like the age. Raise, raise the age. Is there a floor for the age? Like can we take a, a, a three-year-old and, and bring him to, to juvenile court, or is there, is there kind of a, a minimum age before you, you, you We usually talk about six to eight years old. Gotcha. I mean, even a six to eight year old, they, they would have. I mean, I imagine that's when you're in your capacity situations yes. where you would have to, where, where you would, you know, bring in uh, somebody yeah, you, to. You got to make sure that they understand what they did was wrong, that they understand the court process, the role that they play in court, the different roles everybody else plays, and they can un understand and appreciate their punishment. Gotcha. You know, one of the things I've, one of the programs I've heard about that, that I'm kind of interested to understand how it works is, is teen court. Sure. What, what, is, what is that system? So teen court is kind of a diversion for individuals that would be charged in juvenile court or go through the juvenile court process. So if it's your first offense and if it's something that's a misdemeanor, then there are options for you to do teen court. Um, and I've participated with teen court for s about five years um, or so. And so what that looks like is you have high school students that are running the show. So you have attorney volunteers that operate as the judge, but your attorneys are high school kids. Mm -hmm. um, your jurors are going to be your peers. So you've got some middle school kids, but primarily high school kids. Um, so you have a, a juvenile that comes in. They do have to admit responsibility, um, but they have an, another peer that's acting as their defense attorney and another peer that's prosecuting them. Um, it's basically for sentencing, um, so the jury will decide their sentencing after hearing the case. And it's, it's binding. What happens in, in teen court? Or it is, if it you is. get if you get a, a the the short end of the stick, can you? Is there any appeal of, of that, or you just have to deal with the the punishment the teen court's uh, handed out? You have to deal with the punishment that teen court has handed out. If you don't do it or choose not to accept that, then you're basically going to have a petition filed in juvenile court. Gotcha. Enter their parameters, I guess, on what the the jury's options are in teen court, where they, you know, they they can't just. Yeah, they have different level offenses, and each level has different sentencing options. And so the jury goes back and deliberates, and there's typically an adult in the room with them, and they tell them that these are your your parameters, and they basically just circle what can happen. Um, but you're usually talking about a, a kid being a juror for a couple of sessions um, to give back um, and to see other. Um, juveniles go through that process and to help with those decisions and community service and then potentially letters of apology or um, different programs that they might need. How does that work with, we've talked about the privacy involved in juvenile court and how we're not making this a, a public proceeding and kind of, if I understand correctly, are juvenile record, records sealed? So they are confidential, yes. So I presume when you've got your repeat offender situations, that the court would have access to the prior records even though the general public may not. Correct. The court will always have the court file and all the records for each individual person through the juvenile system. Is there a separate set of kind of, of, of structured sentencing, structured guidelines for juveniles like we have in an adult court? Yes. Um, there are dispositional levels, um, and so you have to figure out what your disposition level is. Um, it's one, two, or three, kind of like we have for misdemeanors um, in adult court, but um, if it's your first offense or if it's not a felony, you're looking at a level one, which is going to be a whole series of punishment options by statute, and they increase as your crime, the level of your crime increases or the number of points on your record increase. What are the types of matters that, I know you said high, higher level felonies, is it based on the letter scale? Like, is there a certain cutoff and 
in the in the letters that if it's above this type of felony, then you're automatically going to be in um, an adult court, or is there, or is it a, a kind of an aggravating factor type situation? So it's definitely based on the the letter offense of the felony. Gotcha. Yeah, and then that makes sense to have kind of a, a almost like I guess it's a bright line rule type thing, so that you're not having to to exercise discretion. And but within that, if it if it's just the letter of the felony, is that the same where the 12 year old that that create that uh, commits a high level felony may be charged as an adult? No, it's also based on age as well. Gotcha. Well, makes sense. Um, what about some of these these programs for you know we talked about some programs that are available for. The, the fake ID adults and the in in the the first time drug offenders, um, what type of rehabilitation or or kind of uh, programs are available for for children once they get into the system or they get into you know they they enter a plea in juvenile court? So they enter a plea, then the juvenile court counselors will usually decide what sort of programs the juvenile needs to be involved in. Um, there are occasions where um, the juveniles will have a comprehensive clinical assessment to see what their actual needs are, to see what programs they might need. It might be individual therapy. It might be group therapy. Um, they might need out-of-home placement, all depending upon what their own individual needs are. Um, so that's kind of a more of extreme level. Uh, but then you also have different classes like anger management, or you definitely have the community service element as well. Um, but I have found, um, and in my opinion, I believe that they do try to find resources to actually help these juveniles once they have been adjudicated um, in our court system. Is it fair to say that the focus in juvenile court is based more on rehabilitation than on you know punishment? Yes, I would say that that's the goal. I don't think that most of my juvenile clients would agree with that, but... Um, yeah. I do think that that is what people well, are trying it, to do. It, and that, that was the word that popped in my head. I, I bored over the weekend, and it, idiocracy was on for a minute. And so I had kind of the rehabilitation scene kind of is what, what I was thinking about. I guess that was their term for it. But, but yeah, no, I think that's – that, and that makes sense because you've got people that are in their formative years and, you know, shouldn't be throwing the book at them. Well, coming into our final segment, we'll get into a little bit about how social media and kind of the current – connected world that we live in uh, has created new issues in the world of juvenile law and kind of how the courts are handling that. All right, I'm back with Emily Jones. And last segment, we're going to talk about some, some interesting topics. And, you know, not that everything before wasn't interesting, but but, you know, something that I think is kind of, a new world and it's it's you know really it's stuff i didn't learn about in law school and it's kind of uh, new law developing before our eyes and it's the the social media related uh crimes and offenses uh, what have you seen as far as um the the law's attempt to kind of uh to govern and to to legislate what happens on social media yeah we've got a lot of um snapchat related crimes and not specifically to Snapchat, but a lot of crimes coming out because of Snapchat. Um, but our laws, in my opinion, were pretty structured to cover social media. We're just seeing a lot more of it because kids are using social media so much more than I mean, we didn't have it. <laughs> so and I'm surprised that Snapchat's the main uh, source of a lot of these uh, a lot of these uh, court cases because I thought the whole point of Snapchat was the the picture goes away. Or the um, you know the, the evidence is gone because it's a limited picture that only exists for a certain amount of time. So why why is Snapchat the the source of all this uh, uh, dispute? I guess. Sure. Well, um, it, within Snapchat, you can save photos, and so that becomes a problem. And also because it's not on the app doesn't mean it's not on your phone. Um, so if you do a phone dump, if you have a search warrant, they're able to get uh, a whole lot of information that might not show up on your app. Uh, but one of the, um, to me, more interesting things that I've seen over the past year um, is kind of, it's called an exposure account. And I'd never heard of that before. Um, might be showing my age here, but um, basically you've got somebody that creates an account under um, an unidentifiable name and individuals will tag it as an exposure account. And then other people can send whatever pictures they want to, whatever content to this exposure account. And the individual that maintains this account then publishes it for the world to see. 
Um, so if you're going through a breakup, you can send this exposure account all these different pictures or videos of your ex. This individual who maintains the account spams it out, and everybody has access to see this content. So, is there, so the, yeah, I, I haven't heard of that either. Uh, and so when you're, you're talking about exposure account, are there people that are in the, the business or just they that's just what they do is they host exposure accounts for the purpose of facilitating this? That's my understanding. Um, you know, in talking to one of my clients that was actually um, involved with this type of activity, it's just they're different people that maintain these accounts, and um, they just will tag them as exposure accounts, and people will say, hey, this account is an exposure account. Send all of your content to this account, and people just sit there and maintain them. And, I mean, these individuals will collect hundreds of pictures or videos to then publish on these accounts, not only is publishing them a problem, but the content of the pictures and videos that they're storing on their phone is a problem. Yeah. And, you know, with respect to these the exposure accounts, are they able to, I mean, are they just there, if you know where to look, if you're like, I want to find something embarrassing about people, or I just, or I'm there for amusement, you just go to the exposure account, or is the exposure account targeted towards the, I guess, the victim, so to speak? So, I don't really, it's not usually targeted towards the victim. Um, it's a more of a generic account, um, but it usually takes other Snapchat users to publicize that it is an exposure account. Um, I don't believe that you can just search for exposure and certain accounts yeah. come up. It's just more of a, um, hey, this is a, an area-specific exposure. So I imagine that's how people are getting caught if they're like, oh, look what, you know, look look what this exposure account turned up on my ex. This is crazy. You should You should go to the site and... And look, I mean, it seems like that's that you're you're outing yourself if you if you're aware of it. Potentially, and you know, I think with you know IP addresses and other people, you know, actually talking um, to expose the exposure accounts, you get individuals that are actually maintaining them. Um, caught. Well, you know, you brought up a good point about the phones, and I think it relates to kind of a common theme we've been talking about uh, throughout the the evening as far as search and seizure, and being well, you know, there's a lot of information on people's phones, right? And, you know, typically you would you would need to have a warrant to go through somebody's phone. And I guess unless you consented to it, kind of like the the house example, um, are children able to waive their rights or, or they, I guess, with respect to things like Miranda, you know, where you've got your, your right to remain silent unless, you know, unless you want to waive it. If you're in a custodial interrogation situation, um, can a child waive its rights, its constitutional rights in, in some of these settings? Sure. So if you're under 18 years old, um, there are juvenile-specific Miranda, um, and it has to be just like adult. Um, usually the officers will say it verbally. There's a sheet um, also that has the rights written down, and the, the juvenile will have to sign it. But it's the right to remain silent. Um, anything you say can and will be used against you. You have the right to have a parent present. Um, and that's the big difference between a juvenile and adult. Um, and in addition, you also have the right to have an attorney. Um, and that's the same for um, an, an adult. But um, the parent piece is what's specific to juveniles. Um, and if you're under 16 years old, you're required to have a parent present um, or anything that you tell law enforcement can be inadmissible in court. Um, so, yes, they can waive those rights um, and they can talk to law enforcement. Um, if they're, you know, between 16 and 18, they can sit down and say whatever they want to without a parent there. They can waive that right. Um, if they're under 16, they can still say whatever they want to say, but it would be inadmissible in a court of law. One of the things where I think that the law probably needs to catch up with the times is, let's say, a, you know, a warrant for a phone, for example. You know, a lot of times when you'll see a warrant for a home, you'll see, you'll identify the rooms that can be searched or, you know, it's just not, it's not just like house on the warrant where it's just one word. Like we, you get warrant for house. Right. This it, is the whole phone and anything that's in the phone and you've got cloud issues. I mean, there's just everything. So you see my point, my right. point would be, well, why not be like, all right, if, if this is a, you know, a, uh, a, a bullying, a cyber bullying thing, then all right, you can go to the person's text messages. You know that the warrant should should signify that, or if it's a, you know, a, a, a picture, you know, some some of these like uh, revenge porn type stuff, or however you want to put it, you know, it's like, all right, well, we're going to give you a warrant to look through the person's pictures, right? But I imagine, yeah, there's all kinds of stuff that can wind up on people's phones, some of right. which you might not even be aware that did or was an accident or or whoever is, or, or typically the warrants just phone. 
Like we're going to go pull everything on the person's so phone. So typically it just lists the make and model of the phone, the color of the phone, uh, the phone number associated with that phone. Um, and if there's an IP address that, that's usually attached in that area, then yeah. But yeah, it's very specific to the type of phone it is, but it's the phone. And the IP addresses, I, it seems like that's a way of finding things. Now, I know that you can that they can be scrambled and disguised and whatnot, but a lot of times what you see in the warrants will be uh, activity for a certain IP address. How long is that information typically stored by your Internet service providers? And that I'm not sure about. I know that the storage has changed so much over the past couple of years where things, for example, text messages used to only be stored on the actual server for like three days. Yeah. And now it's if it's on the cloud, if it's an iMessage, it's, it's always there. Um, so I think that really depends on what device you're using, what, you know, program you're using or things of that nature have you been in that position where you're subpoenaing text messages i personally have not um usually what ends up happening is uh, my clients will get charged for something related to their phone or what they've put online um, through their phone and the phone is um, being confiscated we've got a warrant they dump the phone and all the contents come to me um, and so i'm reviewing them the same time the district attorney is yeah. i'm usually not trying to subpoena individual companies for certain records and do you get into situations kind of like what was my concern where they've got subpoena for phone and then they find phone and they were looking for one crime and they're like wow there's 20 absolutely. crimes on this phone absolutely um, and in some instances, law enforcement is more um, concerned about where the content came from, if it was being sent by adults to this juvenile um, or, you know, where they're getting it from. If it's, you know, from the Internet and they're saving it to their phone, if other juveniles are sending it to them, adults. So absolutely, they'll they might be looking for something on Snapchat and then find a whole host of photos saved in this juvenile's phone. And that just creates a, a whole new issue. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, of. We had a professor in law school that used to talk about uh, our, our torts exam was going to be uh, f Friday night at the food line parking lot and just <laughs> count how many you can you can right. find. I imagine that'd probably be a pretty good law school exam would be find all the crimes on this person's phone right. or so this kid's phone. So I don't know. I'm kind of uh, sympathetic towards these kids these days uh, being in that position. Um, well, so what, what would you advise folks as far as management of their phone and, you know, just – the whole situation of trying to avoid being put in that position. Right. So, I mean, you're in control of what you save to your phone. So if you're searching certain things or if you're saving certain pictures, you're in control of that. In a Snapchat context or even on Instagram or other apps, you can't control what's being sent to you, um, but you can control if you spam it back out. And so that's where I'm seeing a lot of problems is – um, you might have a girl that sends a topless picture to her boyfriend on Snapchat, and if he spams it out to all of his friends, guess what? That's a felony. Um, if you save it, guess what? That's a felony. Um, and so, you know, I, I've had 16-year-olds that I've talked to, and I'm like, listen, if you're going to, if you get it, that's one thing. Just don't do anything with it. Just let it, you know, erase off of your Snapchat. You know, you don't have to save it. Don't send it to anybody. Um, and just be very cautious about what you're sending and saving. Well, well back to that, that's this phone situation because it you know we got the warrant for phone and then somebody's got the their underage girlfriend sends sends them a picture of boyfriend vice versa whatever it could be and you know you don't you don't do it you don't download it but it's in your messages i mean is it does the law draw any distinction there between i actively saved it to my photos versus somebody sent me this message unsolicited? You know, I'm not coming across that, um, but I think that as a defense attorney, I would have a really good argument for something of that nature, you know, just to show that there was no active involvement in that. Um, but a lot of times when I'm talking to my juveniles, it's it's who you're around. It's who you're hanging out with, and it's making sure that you're not putting yourself in position to be, you know, constantly getting photos that are otherwise no. inappropriate. Yeah, and I mean, in my examples – a little ridiculous because I mean, yeah, it's it's like how how often are you going to be getting sent unsolicited, incriminating, incriminating photos, and and then you just happen to get a warrant like right after that right. happens. I mean, so yeah, I realize that's not the case. Well, well, Emily, I I appreciate you coming on. Yeah, I've absolutely. learned Thank a you, lot. Justin. It was, it was a lot of fun. Uh, can you tell anybody that's listening uh, about your practice and sure. where they can reach you? So I um, work at Bernie and Jones. I'm the sole attorney there. I practice primarily criminal law and juvenile law. Um, we are at 110 North 5th Avenue. Phone number is 910-762-7771.
All right. Well, I highly recommend Emily for any of your criminal and juvenile needs. And so I, I hope, uh, hope you're doing well. And uh, thanks again for coming on. Thank you, Justin.